If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Today we've got a conversation about the Corn Laws with historian Stephen Bates, who recently wrote a piece on the Corn Laws for the May issue of BBC History Magazine. Our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, spoke to Stephen to find out more about why the 19th century legislation stirred up so much trouble, both in Parliament and on the streets. Stephen, in in your feature in our May issue, you described the Cornwall crisis as a huge political battle over the price of bread. Now, for those who don't know, what exactly were the Cornwalls and what did they set out to achieve? Well, the Corn Laws were a protectionist measure for British farmers and landowners. Uh, There had been um, import tariffs on food before through the centuries, Uh, but the Corn Laws were specifically introduced in uh, 1815, immediately after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, specifically to protect uh, the prices that farmers were going to receive uh, for their grain. Um, And of course, Uh, That meant that uh, imports from abroad, mainly from Europe uh, at that stage, were very much restricted because they were so much more expensive uh, than they would otherwise have been if they were competing directly with English agriculture. So it was a protectionist measure and, of course, very much favoured by farmers and landowners uh, because it kept their prices high. Now, and this this was a particularly divisive issue, wasn't it, in the Tory party uh, at the time? I mean, why were Tories in particular so exercised over this issue? Well, they saw themselves not only as the patriotic party, as they always have, but also as the farmer's friend. And an awful lot of them, of course, were landowners and were also... Um, Uh, had an interest in agriculture. It wasn't entirely uh, a conservative measure. There were a number of uh, Whig, uh, later Liberal uh, MPs who were also opposed to reforming the Corn Laws. Uh, And there were also, uh, was also a faction amongst Tory MPs, uh, perhaps the more progressive sort, and certainly eventually including Robert Peel, um, who thought that this uh, imposition made food prices more expensive and were a block on trade and prosperity and were storing up trouble with the working class. um, Before we go on, could you just paint a picture of what Britain was like at this moment in the second quarter of the 19th century? I mean, would you describe it as as a country in turmoil? It was certainly a country which wasn't particularly at ease with itself. It had undergone immense changes over the previous 50 years with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, People were leaving the land and uh, moving towards better paid jobs in towns and cities. Uh, Industry was taking off and was becoming 
uh, a force in the economy. A larger and larger proportion of the economy was dependent upon trade and uh, industrial processes. And uh, that uh, was also a threat to the Corn Laws because owners and manufacturers and employers saw that uh, corn and bread was being made artificially more expensive for their workers. It meant they had to pay larger wages as well. Otherwise, uh, they wouldn't have any workers who could afford to man the factories that was bringing up. So they were actually rather hostile to it. They bought into the free trade economic theory that was gaining ground at this time, uh, the idea that you could trade freely across the world, and that would be advantageous for British industry, uh, not least because Britain was at the forefront of the Industrial Revolution, the most prosperous country in the world. Now, how exactly did opposition to the Corn Laws manifest itself uh, in the wider country, in the, in the run-up to the Corn Law crisis? Well, there have been a series of uprisings, rebellions, and episodes of discontent, I suppose. You could say throughout the 30-odd years since the end of the Napoleonic Wars, um, people were rebelling about the fact that uh, uh, food was expensive, and it was playing over into politics because they saw the remedy uh, to high prices being to have a say in the politics of the country through its parliament. Of course, most of them didn't have the vote at all and so couldn't influence uh, events. Uh, many of the uh, industrialists in the new industrial towns uh, had the vote, but the uh, uh, cities and and large towns didn't have any representation because the old political system pre-1832 uh, was heavily biased towards the countryside and particularly towards the south of England, not the north and the midlands. So was was this adopted as kind of a core celebre for those who wanted uh, the franchise to be extended, for, for example, the Chartists? Yes, it was. And uh, the repeal of the Corn Laws was central both to the Chartists and to a body called the Anti-Corn Law League, which was set up amongst the manufacturers, chiefly in Lancashire, um, specifically with the aim of abolishing the, the Corn Laws. They saw lots of advantages of the sort I've described, freeing up trade, improving international trade through uh, a free trade system, and uh, more precisely, uh, easing the problems of their workers, the prices that they were having to pay for basic food commodities, and uh, also with the ancillary uh, um, purpose of um, enabling them to either employ more workers themselves or even to reduce wages because food was cheaper. And to what extent did the Napoleonic Wars... Um sort of a trigger sort of disaffection with uh with Britain's leaders among sort of the, the wider population? Um it fed into a, a wider discontent. People thought that if you change the political system, uh then uh it will be more responsive to your needs, your your problems. Um, get rid of the old guard of politics, elect new men from the industrial areas, and also maybe even eventually make them listen to 
the working classes. Um, there was lots of talk in the aftermath of the Napoleonic Wars um, of the need for a provisional government, which some of the working class thought meant a government that would provide them with provisions rather than a temporary government. Um, and there were a series of uh, uncoordinated uprisings in the years after the Napoleonic Wars. Um, first of all, there was the Luddites who um, smashed up industrial ma machinery in an attempt to reverse the effects of the factory system and the Industrial Revolution. Uh, later, there were the swing riots of uh, the early 1830s um, in the rural southeast of England. Uh, people burning ricks and threatening farmers because of the high prices, because of the poverty and the starvation that many of them faced, certainly in um, years when there were bad harvests. So I wonder if you just go into a little bit more detail on exactly how acute um, the impact of the Corn Laws was on the, the poorest residents of the British Isles. Well, bread formed a large part of the diet of uh, many people in in uh, Britain, and it, because the price of bread was high, um, it was also a large part of um, their wages had to go towards basic foodstuffs. Uh, you're talking unimaginably in these days of uh, labourers and skilled workers earning between well, 10 shillings, 50p in modern circumstances, to a pound a week, and bread costing um, maybe a shilling, maybe even a bit more than a shilling. So you can see it was a large part of uh, the, the, the wage bill, a shilling being, of course, 5p in uh, decimal currency. Um, obviously, it bought a lot more than 5p's worth would today, but um, still, it was a large proportion of the essential uh, expenditure of uh, working-class households. And am I right in saying this was uh, felt most keenly in Ireland? It was felt certainly in Ireland because the Irish economy was very vulnerable. Um, in large parts of the south and the west of Ireland, uh, potatoes have become a... Uh, um, the central crop and uh, people lived off what they could grow on their small holdings. And uh, that meant that if the potato crop failed, uh, starvation was essentially going to follow that. And um, indeed, it was going to follow it in other parts of the country as well, including Scotland. Um, so the the population, the peasant population of South and West Ireland was particularly vulnerable to uh, uh, a failure of the potato crop. It meant that um, they would have long stretches of the year uh, where they had virtually no food. How would you characterise uh, pro-Corn Law Tories' attitude to the suffering of the Irish? Tory uh, landowners uh, shared the general prejudice against Ireland and the Irish. Um, they were regarded as an alien people. Indeed, some of them thought they were scarcely human at all. There'd been centuries of persecution of the Catholic uh, peasantry in, in Ireland. And uh, frankly, in days before easy mass communications like we have today, uh, they started off in denial about uh, the condition of the 
Irish, the starvation and the death that was occurring. And basically, and uh, you can see this is a, a, a Tory trope through the generations, they thought they should pull their, pull their bootstraps up, get out to work and get themselves some money. Uh, and that was the way out of the situation. Uh, feeding them, helping them survive the famine um, would only encourage them. And uh, uh, this was a very common attitude on the Tory benches in the 1840s. Now, as you've, uh, as you've alluded to, the, the, the figurehead of the opposition to the Corn Laws was the two-time Prime Minister, Robert Peel. Um, I mean, what, kind of, what kind of man was he? Robert Peel is the first of the post-industrial revolution prime ministers. Uh, although he came from a family which had large estates in the Midlands, um, the family fortune had been made in trade. His um, father and grandfather uh, had huge calico printing factories in Lancashire, and uh, they were a very wealthy family. But uh, uh, although, as I say, he was uh, a landowner, um, that's where the family wealth came from. He was a new man in that uh, in that respect, and could devote himself to politics as a professional politician. And he'd done that um, very successfully within the Tory Party, uh, virtually since he came down from university at Oxford um, in the early 1800s. He was made a, a a minister, very young in his career, and had risen fast through the ranks of the Tory party. Um, on the basis also of his intellect, he was a very bright man. He'd been awarded the first double first uh, degree at Oxford in mathematics and classics um, when, he, when he was a student. And uh, he was... Uh, uh, regarded with some awe by um, uh, most Tories, he, by the 1840s as a party leader, um, was really the biggest figure in the Tory party. And that meant that he was the obvious leader of the party and um, uh, bestrode the House of Commons. He was uh, regarded as the most accomplished speaker, um, the most devastating debater, um, but he was a very chilly man. He, uh, he was affectionate towards his family and his close friends, um, but uh, he didn't suffer fools gladly. I think that's the, uh, the best way of putting it. Um, Daniel O'Connell, the leading Irish politician, famously referred to him having a smile like the uh, uh, brass plate on a coffin lid. And uh, he was... I see, particularly to those people he didn't rate. And he didn't rate an awful lot of the backbench Tories who he thought were um, frivolous and amateurs in politics who didn't pay attention to the economic and political arguments of the day. Um, and uh, he was sort of contemptuous of them. He said uh, that it was like a, a fox hunter, really. Um, leaders led and uh, the hounds followed. And the hounds, in that case, were the Tory backbenchers. So there was uh, uh, respect for him, but very little admiration or affection. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You can get a little 
twinge of this in the Brexit debate, actually, the fierceness of the arguments, the um, absolute refusal to bend and uh, 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 on both sides. Now, when he um, when Peel uh, began opposing the Cornwalls, he he had some pretty unpleasant insults thrown his way, didn't he, by his uh, by fellow Tories? I mean, can you provide some examples of the personal attacks that were levelled at him? Yes, um, this was, the Cornwalls were all part of uh, the bigger free trade argument that Peel had bought into. Uh, he knew that the Corn Laws were a great sort of shibboleth for the landowners and agriculturalists of the Tory party. And so it would be much more politically difficult to abolish them. But that's what he clearly wanted to do um, uh, as part of the parcel of reducing and removing tariffs on all industrial goods coming into the country and being exported. So it was part of a larger economic theory, um, and it was something that uh, he'd been working towards over a number of budgets. He also, although he had a Chancellor of the Exchequer, he tended to present the budgets of his administration in the 1840s himself, and uh, they'd removed tariffs on hundreds and hundreds of items and eventually, um, the object was to scale back and eventually, over a number of years, remove the corn laws so that uh, that would free up uh, corn imports. Um, he knew he couldn't do it easily, uh, but eventually he felt he had no choice because the reports coming in from Ireland showed that there was starvation beginning in, in Ireland, and that gave him a political excuse to say, well, this is an emergency, people are starving, uh, we must uh, get them cheaper food. Of course, the Tory backbenchers, who were sure that um, uh, he wanted really to get rid of the corn laws once and for all, were deeply suspicious of uh, Peel and his motives. And so when in the spring of 1846, he pushed for this measure to come as a means of relieving distress in Ireland. Uh, the Tory backbenchers were seething with disapproval and uh, opposition, and they found their spokesman in a very strange person, really, for them, uh, the young flamboyant novelist uh, Benjamin Disraeli. Um, not only uh, a young, transparently ambitious politician on the make, uh, impoverished, um, very uh, flamboyant in his dress, um, very un-Tory-like in many of his mannerisms and attitude, and above all, even though he wasn't Jewish, he had the name Israeli, and uh, he was uh, regarded uh, with some suspicion by the Tories. But he had one great thing going for him, and that was um, his wit and his flamboyance in oratory and uh, debate. And he deployed it ruthlessly against Peel, who frankly wasn't used to being challenged and laughed at, which is what Disraeli succeeded in doing against him. Didn't he almost have um, Peel in tears a few times in, in, in Parliament? 
Yeah, eventually um, he not quite broke down, but he was certainly very discomforted by the things that Disraeli was saying. Disraeli had actually applied when Peel became prime minister in 1841 for a job in government. He'd wanted one and he'd actually begged for one. Um, and Peel knew this, but he turned him down because he was, uh, in the Tory sense, rather suspicious and contemptuous of him and didn't think uh, he was up to much. Um, and so there was a strong element of revenge, which Peel recognised in Disraeli. Um, and uh, uh, there came a point in one of the debates when uh, Peel said, um, in response to one of Disraeli's attacks, there was a time when you wanted to be in the government, essentially. And Disraeli shamelessly got up behind him and said, no, 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 I never applied for a job in your government. Now, Peel allegedly had the letter of application uh, in his folder in front of him in the Commons that night. Um, whether he did or not, who knows, but uh, he certainly knew all about that. And instead of deploying it against Disraeli, which would probably have destroyed Disraeli's political career once and for all, Peel disdained using it um, and refused to respond. And I think it probably aggravated the uh, the pro-Corn Law people more than a little that he was so disdainful to them. He repeatedly deployed political and economic arguments, and he really couldn't understand why they couldn't see it. Yeah. You know, I'm telling you these things. Um, and eventually he, he, he got very emotional about it because he said at one point, why won't you do this when, uh, how much bloody flux and diarrhea and cholera will you accept from the Irish peasantry? How much do they, ha how many of them have to die before you'll give in to this? Which is very strong stuff, um, yeah. deep, in, deep in the Hansard record. Um, and they said, you know, well, uh, our, our peasants are much better off anyway. You know, we, uh, we're f they're fine with this. They support us all the way. Um, and Peel just couldn't hit their emotional buttons. And uh, they got harder and harder in their opposition, more and more frenzied. Um, you can get a little twinge of this in the Brexit debate, actually, the fierceness of the arguments, the um, absolute refusal to bend and uh, 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 on both sides. And um, Peel got more and more despairing and they got more and more vehement. The other uh, leading opponent uh, uh, on the Tory benches was a man called Lord George Bentinck, who was a friend of Disraeli's, became a friend of Disraeli's. He was a hugely wealthy landowner in Nottinghamshire. Um, and he actually accused Peel at one stage of effectively killing his relative, George Canning, who'd been briefly prime minister in the 1820s and died. Um, Peel had uh, refused to serve under him because uh, at that stage, he opposed Catholic emancipation, which George Canning was uh, in favour of, and so had refused to stand. 
in the government and uh, Canning had struggled to form a ministry. He had done so, but then he died. And Bentinck said, well, Peel was responsible for that. Peel was absolutely furious. He wanted to challenge him to a, a duel, which would have been a remarkable thing in the mid-19th century. Um, and he had to be talked out of it by one of his uh, one of his friends. They walked up and down Whitehall in the early morning. Uh, you can imagine a hot June morning uh, in 1846. So there was a heat wave going on, so you can imagine what the smell was like coming off the Thames. Um, Peel's house was on Whitehall, and they walked up and down outside as the early labourers went to work, the early clerks. Uh, Peel being argued out of um, uh, Peel being argued out of uh, uh, fighting a duel with uh, Bentinck, which would have been a disaster anyway. Um, and he thought better of it. Eventually, went went to bed, slept on it, got up later in the morning, um, and demanded an apology. And eventually, Bentinck, with great ill grace, sort of backed down. Um, but this was a, a measure of just how frenzied the whole thing was. How did Peel go about revoking the Cornwalls? I mean, how did he get it through? Was it a close-run thing? In the end, it wasn't a particularly close-run thing because. Lord John Russell, having um, having announced his support for the repeal of the Corn Laws, whipped the Whig Party into line with the Peelites. Um, but about two thirds of the Tory backbenchers um, uh, opposed it, so it got through with a large majority, and it got through the Lords with a large majority too, where they thought they might have trouble, but. Um, the leader of the Tories in the House of Lords was the Duke of Wellington, immensely respected, uh, the victor of Waterloo, old soldier, and uh, he, uh, he, he made sure that the Lords fell into line. But there was, a, there was a catch at the end, the same evening. There was an Irish uh, security bill that was uh, uh, also going through the House at the same time. And it was to um, boost security among, for the forces in Ireland at the time of the famine. It's normally an uh, utterly uncontroversial measure that everyone would accept. But in the circumstances, the Tory rebels sided with the Whigs who opposed it. And that's what brought Peel down the same night as the Corn Laws were finally repealed. So the coronal crisis caught up with Peel in the end. I mean, what, what happened to him eventually? What, what did it do to him on a personal level? Well, he uh, and his followers, the Peelites, uh, about 60 or 70 of them, um, went into uh, independent opposition. Lord John Russell uh, formed a government and took power. Um, the Peelites tended to support him on free trade measures, and eventually people like Gladstone, who'd been a follower of Peel, uh, moved over and the Liberal Party was born of Whigs and Peelites. Um, uh, Peel stayed in the Commons uh, and uh, spoke out against the government uh, on various occasions, um, and then had a rather unfortunate accident in 1850, four years later. Um, he was uh, on the committee uh, decide, planning the Great Exhibition, which was to take place the next year. And he went to a meeting in Buckingham Palace with Prince Albert to, to discuss it. 
got back on his horse, which was a new horse he'd only recently bought, which had a somewhat skittish reputation. Um, that wouldn't have bothered Peel because, like everyone else, he'd ridden for decades. Um, but uh, he was clip-clopping back down uh, Constitution Hill to get home, and he saw two young ladies that he recognised and stopped to, uh, they were riding as well on Rotten Row, I think, and he stopped to have a few words with them, and something scared his horse, and the horse bucked and threw him and then rolled on top of him, and uh, it crushed him, basically, and he was carted back to his home. There was very little that surgeons could do in those days, and he died in considerable agony two or three days later. So he didn't have a long afterlife, um, but the outpouring of emotion when he died was very strong and considerable from the working classes, particularly of the industrial areas, um, who saw him as the saviour of uh, their lives. He, he was the man who'd given them cheap bread. He was the man who'd uh, stood up to the agricultural interest. And even to this day, you can go round the cities of the Midlands and the North and see statues of Sir Robert Peel, which were erected after his death by public subscription. So he was a very popular figure at the end. Sure. And what would you say were the chief legacies of the Cornwall crisis? Well, it split the Tory party um, uh, some were never reconciled, people like Gladstone, people like Peel. Uh, Disraeli uh, seized the leadership of the Tory party in the Commons. The most, most of the leadership was in the Lords, people like Lord Derby, considerable landed magnate in the north of England. Disraeli um, didn't really have landed estates. He, was, he borrowed money from Lord George Bentinck um, to buy... Um, uh, his house outside um, High Wycombe. Um, and uh, he rapidly abandoned any idea of returning to the Corn Laws. Within two or three years, he told the Tories that that game was up and uh, there was no chance of restoring the Corn Laws. So um, it was a, a brief cause for him and it got him where he wanted to be, right in the heart of the leadership of the Tory party. Um, but it took the Tory party uh, until he himself became prime minister nearly 30 years later in 1874 um, to really get back into power. They'd had brief ministries um, in the 1860s, um, but really to form a majority government took them 30 years. And that's the chief legacy of the Tory uh, uh, split in 1846. The acceptance of free trade and being out of power, a lesson they hated learning, and it's the longest they've been out of power in the 300 years that uh, there has been essentially a Tory party. And finally... Um, Stephen, why should we care about the Corn Law crisis today? I mean, does it have any echoes in the in the 21st century? I think it does. Um, certainly, the argument over free trade, over protectionism uh, of uh, indigenous um, products, indigenous agriculture, 
um, has continued to be divisive within the Tory party particularly, um, and uh, most clearly has echoes of um, uh, even today uh, in the Brexit argument, in fact, um, you know, the the foreigners who are coming over here telling us how to run ourselves, um, uh, uh, interfering with our free trade, telling us what to do. These are all things which were foreshadowed uh, 180 years ago in the uh, in the Cornwall crisis. There was a, a backbench uh, MP for Cambridgeshire called Elliot York, who said, if you repeal uh, the Corn Laws, you're just, uh, you might just as well call it um, the Foreign Serfs Assistance Bill, um, because you're just putting money in the pockets of foreign farmers. Uh, they'll, they'll dictate our prices, they'll dictate what we do. Um, uh, an argument which is strikingly similar to the sort of thing we heard during the Brexit debates uh, over the last few years. That was Stephen Bates. You can read Stephen's feature on the Corn Laws in the May issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now and also includes articles on medieval magic and the anarchy, as well as a special supplement to mark the 75th anniversary of VE Day. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us next on Sunday for another episode of our special Everything You Wanted to Know But Were Too Afraid to Ask series. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.